It's a joy for us to gather here again on this Lord's Day, to lift our voices together, to pray together, to fellowship together, and to come under the ministry of Christ's truth together. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, our text this morning is verses 14 through 30. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out, went out through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we are hungry, Lord. We are thirsty. We are in need of Your grace, Lord. We are in need of Your righteousness. We are always, Lord, in need of Your presence and Your power active in our lives. How wonderful it is, Lord, to remember the words of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We pray now, Lord, that you would satisfy us, the longings of our hearts with your truth, our longing for your presence, Lord, with the truth of your Son. Let us look to you and behold you and draw near to you and see, Lord, how you are a Savior who suffered rejection 
so that we could be made acceptable in the sight of our God. Bless us now, Father God, and may your spirit move, guiding our minds in the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, it is, a, it is a memorable time in the life of any young preacher when you finally have that moment where you are able to fill the pulpit at your own home church. I know the young men who we have raised up in ministry, I know it was a special moment for them when they got their first opportunity. I remember very distinctly when I had my first opportunity. I had just finished the first year of my Master of Divinity degree at seminary. I was home serving as an intern at my home church over the summer. And a Sunday night slot came open, and Pastor Bill asked me if I would preach that Sunday evening. And it was an amazing and a nervous time. It was a joy to think of finally being able to deliver God's Word to my very own church family. And, and, and it was amazing afterwards, just the encouragement that I, I'm sure was very undeserved and that for which I was very unworthy, but it was such a blessing to receive the encouragement and, and really validity from my church family for the calling that God had placed on my heart. I cannot imagine what it would have been like if my home church family had gotten so offended with my message that night that they wanted to take me out in the parking lot and kill me. Yet that is exactly what we see happening to our Savior in the text before us this morning. Jesus knows from firsthand experience that those who should know you the best can sometimes misunderstand you and hate you the most, even more. Jesus knows that religious people can be some of the greatest impediments to gospel ministry. We see that through our text this morning, brothers and sisters, and it speaks to us, as God's Word always does, even today. Have you had family members or close, wit or close friends reject your witness to Christ because they know you, because they watched you grow up, because they saw what kind of person you were, and they struggled to hear from you? Or have you ever felt rejected and betrayed by the very people who should have supported you the most? As we walk through our passage this morning, we will see that Christ understands exactly what that is like. We're going to look at this text just in two points this morning. And the first thing we want to consider is the marvel of the Messiah's homecoming. The marvel of the Messiah's homecoming. Following his temptation by Satan, Jesus emerged from the wilderness in the full anointing and power of his Holy Spirit. He then immediately began his itinerant preaching ministry in the region of Galilee. Verse 15 tells us that it was his habit to visit each town's synagogue, presumably teaching in each one as a visiting rabbi, just as he would later do in his own hometown of Nazareth. At that time, we know that there were a couple weekly teaching times in the synagogue, but of course, much like today, the primary gathering was on the Sabbath day. In the Jewish synagogue, the service would begin by singing the Psalms, and then that would be followed by the reading of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You've heard that before, and that goes on. Then after that, there would be the praying of the Amidah, or the prayer of 18 blessings, and then the people would stand for the reading of Scripture, 
There would be a reading from the, from the law in Hebrew with a translation into Aramaic, which was the language of the day, followed by a reading from the prophets also with a translation into Aramaic. And then the attendant would seat the congregation, and, and then the rabbi would also be seated on a, on a little bit of a raised platform, but on a seat, and from that seat, he would preach to the people. So Jesus himself was going from synagogue to synagogue in the region of Galilee, proclaiming his kingdom and doing miracles among the people. The text tells us that he was being glorified by all and that word was spreading about him throughout all the surrounding region. Thus, when he made the decision to return to his hometown of Nazareth, the town had to be pretty excited Remember that Nazareth had kind of a seedy reputation. They had kind of a bad reputation in Israel. So to have such a noteworthy spiritual leader returning home to be the Sabbath day preacher would have been a significant event. Maybe Nazareth was finally going to make it into the local news for something good, right? So on the Sabbath day, as was his ordinary practice, Jesus went to the synagogue there in Nazareth. As the visiting rabbi, he was entrusted with the responsibility to read the scriptures and deliver the message. They handed him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opened it to the specific text he wanted to read. And the passage he read was from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Jews who knew their Bible well would have known that this text was about how the Messiah would usher in the ultimate year of Jubilee. If you remember, the year of Jubilee was supposed to be every 50 years in Israel. It was a year of amnesty when all slaves were released. It was a year of redemption when all debts were forgiven. And it was a year of restoration when all ancestral lands reverted back to their original owners. Well, in Isaiah 62, it talks about God's anointed one ushering in the ultimate and permanent time of Jubilee. And so Jesus read that text that morning. He rolled up the scroll, then handed it back to the attendant. He assumed the seated position from which the rabbi would teach. And as everyone is focused on him, ready to receive his message, he says to them, verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Very simply, he announced the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The suffering servant, the Messiah, was now in their midst. A new epoch of salvation history was beginning. He was bringing the good news of redemption to the poor in spirit. He had come to liberate those who were held captive by sin. He had come to give spiritual sight to those lost in the darkness of this world. And he would bring relief to those oppressed by this sinful world order. All these things he would accomplish as an outpouring of his Father's favor. Now we see in verse 22 that this message was initially very well received by the people. They spoke very well of him like the hometown boy that he was, right? You can just hear the conversations now. Listen to that. I bet Mary is so proud of her son. If only Joseph were here to see this today. Look at Jesus teaching now in the synagogue. He was always such a good boy. I knew he was going to do something special. The text also says that they marveled at his gracious words. 
Didn't Jesus speak so beautifully? Didn't he just read so well? I sure hope that all those other synagogues around Galilee appreciate what our young Jesus has to teach them. Initially, everything was positive, supportive, and good. Perhaps there were even a few faithful souls in that congregation that day that were truly touched and changed by the words of Jesus. But as we are going to see in a moment, that supportive and positive tone changed very quickly. Before we get there, though, there are a few points of application I want us to draw from this first section. And this is the first. First, we want to acknowledge here the primacy of preaching. The primacy of preaching. You know, the Puritans used to say that God had only one son and he made him a preacher. We see here that from the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus' focus himself was on preaching the gospel, on preaching his kingdom, on preaching how he, the Messiah, had come. It's what the church is built upon. It is what the people of God are to value. Jesus himself establishes that for us. The church rises or falls, the health of a congregation rises or falls on the accurate and faithful preaching of God's holy word, on the accurate preaching of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. As it says in Romans 10, Beginning at verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Preaching is essential to the biblical church. It was true in the day of Christ, and it is true in our day. And yet, you all know as well as I do how we see so often just the opposite among those who claim to profess Christ, right? We see over and over again, Christians are drawn to very weak or very bad or very unbiblical preaching even in order just to, to get the, the, the kind of performance they want out of worship, or in order to get the, the fun program for their children or their youth that they want to have, we, we see in Christendom a failure to value the preaching of God's Word. Jesus reminds us of the primacy of preaching. And what he did here in Israel is the model that the disciples later followed in the book of Acts. In each new town or city, when the apostles were going forth into the world with the gospel, the first thing they would do is go to the local synagogue and preach the gospel to the Jews. They would teach from the Old Testament that Christ had come in fulfillment of prophecy, and they would call the people to place their faith in Jesus as God's perfect sacrifice for sin. Christ reminds us by his example, brothers and sisters, that preaching is primary. And if I or any other man were ever to stand before you and give you less than the whole truth of God's Word, you should call us to account. You should hold our feet to the flame to be faithful preachers and providers of God's truth to you, God's people. The second thing we see here that Jesus models for us is the priority of the Sabbath day gathering. 
The priority of the Sabbath day gathering. We know that Israel was in a very bad place in spiritual terms at this time. The average synagogue meeting in Israel at this time was likely very weak and very legalistic. And you know, seeing that, Jesus could have easily preached out in the open air to separate himself from that. Uh, To put it in modern vernacular, Jesus could have started his own para-synagogue ministry, right? But he didn't. As the text says, it was his custom to be with the Lord's people on the Lord's day, either sitting under the word himself or providing the preaching of his word himself. And listen to me, throughout his lifetime, even up to this point, Jesus likely had to sit through a lot of sermons where the rabbis didn't get it right. There was no perfect synagogue in Jesus' day, just as there is no perfect church in our day. Yet faithful attendance and involvement on the Lord's day is what Jesus modeled for us. That's another important thing for us to remember, brothers and sisters. Even you that are watching remotely. We live in a time where COVID has kind of upended everything in the church in America during these times. It seems like not a week goes by that I don't hear of yet another pastor who says something very unbiblical, effectively planning for how they're going to minister to people who were never again come to the gathering of the body on the Lord's Day now that they know they can stay at home and worship. Brothers and sisters, that that is wrong. Indeed, I will go so far to even say that for those who are able to attend and yet choose not to, who are professing believers in Christ, it is sinful. When we talk about what church should be like after a post-COVID world, when we talk about what church should be like when this pandemic ends, the answer is that it should be the same as it has always been after every plague, every pestilence, every persecution throughout church history. What church should be is the people of God gathering in person to fellowship under the preaching of Christ and his gospel. Christ has died to gather a people to himself. Christ has not died so that we can remain separated and scattered, but that we might be bound together in his grace, in his love, in his strength, in person, for the glory of his name. That is what he has redeemed us unto. The third thing we see here is the hope that gospel preaching conveys. The hope that gospel preaching conveys. The truth that Christ has come to save us from our sin is good news, both in terms of our spiritual needs and in terms of our temporal needs. You see, man's primary problem is that we are dominated by our sin nature, right? And so, as sinful human beings, we need to be liberated from our slavery to sin. We need to be healed of our spiritual blindness. We need Christ to lift us out of our poverty of heart. But then, then there are the secondary effects of sin upon humanity in the temporal realm, in the physical sense. Because of sin... Authority is abused and people are oppressed in this world. Because of our sinful choices and personal tragedies, people are impoverished. Because sin corrupts the material, physical world, people are sick and blind and lame. But that's the good news, brothers and sisters, that Jesus proclaimed in his own hometown. The good news is that Christ is God's solution for all suffering, whether it's spiritual or temporal. 
That is what Christ is proclaiming there to his own home crowd in Nazareth. That he has come. That the prophecy is fulfilled. That he is God's anointed one who will deliver God's people from their sin and suffering. He holds the power to restore spiritual Israel. And therefore, he is the hope of mankind. Do you hear that, brothers and sisters? Because it's still true. When we look around at a world that is in rioting, when we look around at a world that is crying out for social justice, when we look around at a world that is throwing itself into chaos because every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, when we look at a world that is obsessed with sexual identity, when we look at a world that is obsessed with personal autonomy, when we look at a world that is turning in on itself in the name of political correctness, what we are to understand is that Jesus is the only one who can heal. Jesus is the only one who can liberate. Jesus is the only one who can bring true justice. Jesus is the only one who is capable of bringing the healing that our souls need. We will never find what we are looking for in personal autonomy or in philosophies of men. We will only find that healing and that grace and that justice and that liberation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the message of hope that our Savior brings. The message of hope that we all long for and need on a daily basis. That takes us to the second part of our text then. And to my second main point. We see next in the text the wrath of rebuked religious people. The wrath of rebuked religious people. Look there at verse 22 because in the second half of verse 22 is where everything changes. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Look at what's happening here after after speaking well of him and marveling at his gracious words. It's evident that the people are doing what they should do. They're really beginning to think about his message. Jesus had said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so they're thinking about that. And as they're thinking about that, the light bulb goes on. The clear implication was that Jesus was identifying himself as the anointed one, as the Messiah, who had arrived to usher in this age of salvation. Now, now they were on board with hometown pride and a native son. The people of Nazareth were certainly glad to see one of their own do so well as a rabbi, but certainly Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. After all, the Messiah would be sent from God himself, and Jesus Jesus was just the son of Joseph, the the village carpenter. So at the core of the matter, they were reluctant to see Jesus as anything other than a hometown boy who made good. Unless Jesus could somehow prove his claim to them by conjuring up some signs and wonders. Right? Right? As far as they were concerned, if Jesus wanted them to believe that he was the Messiah, preaching wasn't enough. He had to perform for them. 
And Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. That's why he said to them, look at verse 23. Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. You know, healing the crippled and sick was one of many types of miracles that Jesus did as he preached his kingdom. Now, his reputation in his own hometown needed healing. The people demanded that he prove his outrageous claim by doing the same kinds of miracles in Nazareth that he did in Capernaum. And if we stop right there, brothers and sisters, we we hear a familiar note, don't we? Because skeptics continue to do the same thing today. In fact, skeptics have done this throughout the past 2,000 years. People hear the gospel that Jesus has died on the cross in the place of sinners to atone for sin before a holy God. He died and rose again, and anyone who believes in him will be forgiven by God and given the gift of eternal life. Multitudes of people hear this, and they are almost ready to believe they just need proof, right? They just need proof. If God will fix their relationship problems, then they'll believe. Or if God will solve their financial issues, then they will believe. Or if God will somehow take away their suffering or cure their pain, then they will believe. Or if if God will just speak to me audibly so that I can hear him, so that he will prove himself to me, then I will believe in him. But the core problem with those people, the core problem with the people at Nazareth, is that they would not take God at His word. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary said it well. He said, The problem for skeptics is that Jesus does not give in to our demands. Rather than allowing us to take Him on our terms, He insists that we receive Him on His terms or not at all. This is why Jesus refused to give the kind of performance that all His old neighbors were looking for. They would not believe in His word. In fact, brothers and sisters, if we go to the parallel passage in Mark, it tells us that Jesus couldn't do any of his mighty works in Nazareth because of their unbelief. So in response to their lack of faith, Jesus continued in verse 24 to give yet another proverb. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And here Jesus tells us what the problem really is. People love hometown heroes, right? People love hometown heroes, but not hometown prophets. It is true that familiarity breeds contempt. Family members and neighbors and those who watched us grow up, they knew us back when, so they think they know us completely. And that's why when we get together with our family, many of us just did this over the holiday, right? We find ourselves at Christmas together with family. Family members that we know are as lost as a third verse of a Baptist hymn. I tell you what, people that we know are without Christ. And we try to share the gospel with them, right? And they don't want to hear from us because they knew us. They know us. They can't receive the word of God from our lips. That's what happened to Jesus. The people of Nazareth were not about to let the lowly carpenter's boy present himself as their deliverer. Not unless he was prepared to dazzle them with some hefty miracles. 
So Jesus continued by providing some biblical illustrations for the fact that no prophet was accepted in his hometown. Elijah and Elisha were two of the greatest Old Testament prophets in Israel's history. Yet they received very little honor among their own people as well. In fact, we know Elijah, the the king and queen of Israel, sought for years to put him to death. Well, in verses 25 and 26, Jesus briefly referenced the story of the widow of Zarephath from 1 Kings 17. She and her son were near starvation due to a famine in the land. But God sent Elijah to them, and God miraculously fed all three of them for a period of years. In verse 27, Jesus then referenced the story of Naaman, the commander of the whole army of Syria, given in 2 Kings 5. Naaman struggled. He was afflicted with leprosy. And Elisha, the the prophet of Israel, sent for him and healed him. And as we read these three verses together, as Jesus gives these two illustrations from Scripture, it's evident what Jesus is doing. You see, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper were not Israelites, they were Gentiles. And so Jesus was effectively warning the people of his own hometown that the same thing could happen to them. As they rejected the Lord's Messiah then the good news would be taken outside of Israel to believing Gentiles. But there's an even greater lesson here in these two illustrations. Even more, the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper, both of them acted in faith with very little information. Think about that. Both of them acted in faith with very little information. The widow was called by Elijah to bake him a cake of bread first, and then she would see the miracle of the flour jar that was never exhausted or the oil oil jar that never emptied. Naaman, likewise, was told to go bathe in the Jordan seven times, and then he would receive the miracle of healing. Both the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the leper, they both acted in faith first, and then they saw God's miracle. Jesus was calling the people of his hometown to do the same thing. Basically to take God at his word. But they wanted to see it before they would believe it. Jesus was saying to them that they needed to believe him first. Then they would see his glory. And if they refused to believe, he would leave and give his grace to those who would believe. Even Gentiles, just like he did during the time of Elijah and Elisha. You see, by preaching to them in this way, Jesus had insulted their ethnic pride and their spiritual pride. First, their ethnic pride. If there is one thing the people of Nazareth knew, it was that God was for the Jews and against the Gentiles. And so they resented any implication that the Gentiles might receive the grace and favor of God before they did. They were his chosen people. So for Jesus to say that a Gentile leper would receive God's favor before them was wholly intolerable. Second, in terms of their spiritual pride, people generally do not like to admit how needy they are. Think about it. You and I, we don't like to admit how spiritually needy we really are. According to Jesus, the good news that he brought was for the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. But the people of Nazareth, they believed that they were good, law-keeping, Bible-believing, Sabbath-attending Jews. So when Jesus attacked their self-righteousness, 
they responded with anger. How dare this young upstart present himself as their Savior? After all, they were Jews. Faithful Jews at that. And so, they tried to murder him. Look at the end of verse 28. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Verse 29, And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. As you know, stoning was the prescribed punishment for blasphemy. And stoning could be done by two different means. Stoning could be done by throwing rocks at you while you laid on the ground or in a pit. And stoning could also be done by throwing you off of a precipice where you would be dashed on the rocks below. This is what the people who knew Jesus best thought of His claim to be the Messiah. They thought it blasphemy. They did not believe. And in their wrath, they sought to kill Him. This was not the first time people had tried to kill Jesus, though, was it? No, Herod had tried to kill him when he was just a toddler. And unfortunately, the longer Jesus ministered, the more people would want him dead. He would be rejected by those who should have welcomed him the most. And so what happened at Nazareth foreshadowed what would ultimately happen at the cross. But this day, this was not the appointed day of his death, so a miracle happened. Look at the very last verse of our text, verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. We're not told more than that. You know, we'd, we, we kind of wonder, you know, I wonder if there was this big moment where Jesus, you know, just in the voice of God commanded, everybody move, and, and you know, he just went through, I don't know. We're not given more. But Jesus evidently walked right through the midst of an angry, angry mob and right out of Nazareth. And as far as we know from the testimony of all the Gospels, Jesus never returned to his hometown again the entirety of his earthly ministry. He effectively shook the dust from his feet. And as the people of Nazareth rejected him, he rejected them. Let me leave us now with a few points of application again, brothers and sisters. First of all, and this is very important, this is one of the main lessons of this text. Unbelief can be prominent even where Jesus is supposedly most well known. Unbelief can be prominent even where Jesus is supposedly most well known. You see, the world, and indeed, Many churches are full of religious people who admire Jesus for His teaching and who recognize Him as one of the greatest men to have ever lived. But sadly, their own pride and self-righteousness keep them from ever knowing Him as their saving Lord. Hear this very carefully, brothers and sisters, very carefully. Familiarity with the things of God is no assurance that you are a child of God. Familiarity with the things of God is no assurance that you are a child of God. 
And I would add to that that pride remains one of the greatest dangers for Christians. The Apostle Paul warns in 2 Timothy 3.5 that there are many who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. That is so true for so many of us this day. And we would do well to be warned. You know, I even, I even meet regularly, I meet on an almost weekly basis with my brother David Day as he does outdoor ministry and evangelistic ministry around the city. And, and inevitably, you know, it's the professing Christians that react the most violently to his ministry. It's professing Christians that tell him he shouldn't be out there warning people that they're sinners in need of God's salvation in Jesus Christ alone. It's professing Christians, people who say they have Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that berate him outside the abortion clinic, telling him, no, it's a woman's right to kill her baby. Today, just as it was then, one of the biggest impediments to gospel preaching and ministry are professing Christians. How sad it is that professing Christians seem to be the ones who get the most enraged with the proclamation of a message about sin and hell and salvation found in Jesus Christ alone. We would do well to go to the words of 2 Corinthians 13.5 where we are told, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now I want to be sensitive to, to many among us who I know have a tender conscience. My goal is never to make you doubt your salvation or to make you fear I would remind you that the Bible says if we have faith but as a mustard seed, we will move mountains. It's not about the size of our faith. It's about the grandness of our Savior. And so look to Christ and know and rest in Him. But oh, precious brother, sister, be careful that your faith is not a facade as it was for the people in Nazareth that day. Secondly, and I'll conclude with this last point, and this is really the focus of it all, right? We have a Savior who willingly suffered rejection among men in order to earn our acceptance before God. We have a Savior who willingly suffered rejection among men in order to earn our acceptance before God. As it says in Isaiah 53, as Pastor Jordan read so well for us, Jesus would be despised and rejected by those He came to save. He would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. No prophet was ever dishonored as badly as Jesus was. Not only in his own hometown, but in all the world. Think of all the ways that Jesus himself suffered rejection. He was rejected in his own hometown. If we read later in John 3, we see Jesus was even mocked by his own younger brothers. His own family. Later in his ministry, his own family just thought he'd gone crazy. And they were trying to get him to come back home before Herod had him put to death. Everywhere Jesus went, while there were some. Some who believed there were many who rejected him, many who, who mocked him and scorned him. The very religious leaders who had the greatest access to Scripture, who had the whole testimony of God's Word in the Old Testament, they were first in line to say that this man had to die. 
Think about on the night of his betrayal. Jesus was betrayed, rejected and betrayed by one of his own disciples. And as he was arrested in the garden, the 11 others, they fled as well. Think about the loneliness of standing trial and the rejection at the hands of those who should have welcomed him with open arms. And then think about how Jesus was rejected on the cross itself as he bore our sins on the tree. The gaze of the Father had to look away from him for the first and only time of his existence because Jesus was covered with our sin. It was so burdensome to our Lord that he cried out, Father, why would you forsake me? Jesus knows what it is to be rejected, to be despised, to be murdered by the very people he came to save. And yet he willingly laid down his life out of love for his Father and love for us. You know, the interesting thing to remember even about this passage in Luke 4 is that on this particular day in Nazareth, Jesus was not unwilling to die. It was just not yet his time. When the right time came, he would lay down his life of his own accord in order to redeem those who despised him most. He would do this for us, brothers and sisters. And so as we consider the glory and the wonder and the splendor of a Christ who was rejected so that we could be accepted, let us test ourselves. Let us examine our hearts. Are you looking to yourself and your own moral life with a sense of pride and contentment? Or do you know and understand that true life and grace and mercy is found only in Jesus Christ alone? Not in what you do, but in what He has done. Even more, are you facing rejection by those who should love you most? Then trust your heart to Him who judges rightly. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. He knows what it is to be hurt and injured by those closest to you. He knows what it is to be rejected by the very people who once were singing your praises. Run to Jesus. He knows. As it says in John 1, 11 through 13, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And know healing and grace and forgiveness and acceptance in Him.